my life had recently been plagued by a persistent bout of rotten luck. I'd been terminated from my last job. The weeks spent unemployed were slipping into months despite the stacks of applications I'd filled out, and every credit card I possessed had been maxed out to its limit. Bitterness and self-loathing had poisoned every fiber of my being and left me with an inescapable melancholy that I was starting to believe was incurable. My latest humiliation had been to dig through my wallet for spare change, as a cashier fixed me with the plastered-on smile, and an impatient line grew behind me, only to find that I still didn't have enough money to purchase a meager amount of groceries. I'd headed to Woodharrow Park afterwards, a local secluded, sleepy stretch of land to clear my head. The park was empty when I arrived, leaving me free to wander the paths alone and aimlessly. Hunger gnawed away at me like a familiar enemy I could never quite shake. In a final indignity, the previously sunny sky suddenly began to pour rain, and I, of course, was not carrying an umbrella. I was so absorbed in my own misery that I barely felt the gentle tug on my jacket sleeve. Looking back, I wish that I'd kept walking along the path without so much as glancing downwards. I wish that I'd ignored the soft, silent plea for my attention. I wish that I hadn't made the horrible mistake of believing that a hand, with a touch so timid and helpless, was incapable of holding the power to be terrifying. But instead, I foolishly stopped in my tracks, and ever since that fateful decision... I've not had a single moment of peace. I looked down to see two children standing at my side and immediately felt the jolt of unpleasant surprise. Both stood no higher than my waist, one slightly taller than the other, and both were clad in black raincoats that looked more suited for a sepia-toned photograph than a modern-day child. They each wore matching wide-brim hats that dropped the top their small heads and obscured most of their faces, though I could vaguely discern that the taller of the pair was a boy and the shortest a girl. I was unable to see any features above the pallid flesh of their swollen cheeks. Their lips were so colorless that it appeared as if they had little more than a thin white sliver for a mouth. The children's bodies were round without any of the cherubic softness associated with youth. Rather, they looked unnaturally bulbous, bloated to the point of near grotesqueness. Unbrushed tufts of stringy blonde hair jutted from beneath their hats like tangled straw, dry as a brittle bone and seemingly untouched by so much as a single drop of rain. Hello. I said, forcing myself to sound upbeat. They stared up at me in silence. The girl continued to cling to my sleeve. Hey, are you okay? I asked. By now I was drenched and eager to head back to my car. Do you need some help? But the pair remained mute. I stood there awkwardly, unsure of what to do, when the girl suddenly began to grip my arm with a startling strength that made me worry she would pull me to the ground. Alarms rang loudly throughout my brain 
I felt an immediate urge to extract myself from her unsettling grasp and leave them both behind in the rain. Well, I warily pulled my arm away, somewhat embarrassed for being afraid of how the pair would react. If you don't need anything, I'll be on my way. She released her hold on me without protest, neither said a word as I walked away. When I turned around for a final look of parting, I saw that they were staring at me. Though I could not see their eyes, I felt their gaze follow me with an intensity that disturbed me no matter how much distance I put between us. I didn't look back again. I picked up my pace and dug my keys out of my pocket. The rain fell as cold as ever. I unlocked my car and was thinking about the can of chicken noodle soup I had left in my sparse pantry when I noticed that the girl had left behind a stain on my sleeve. As dark as ink and shaped like her tiny fingers. I wiped it with my thumb, but the mark didn't budge. I sighed and looked up, only to nearly stumble backwards in shock when I saw the back seat door open and the girl sitting inside. She'd removed her hat and was holding it in her hands, both of which were clean despite the mark on my jacket, with her head bowed and her knotted hair concealing her face like a curtain. Hey! I tried to keep my tone from betraying how unnerved I was, and well, I failed spectacularly. What are you doing in here? She sat as wordless as before, tightly squeezing and twisting the brim of her hat with such violence that I was certain she would rip it apart. I swallowed my uneasiness. Look, I said as calmly as I could manage, if there's something wrong... I can't help you if you don't tell me what it is. I reached into my pocket and pulled out my phone. Because it's better if I call the police and then you could just tell them. My voice trailed off as I watched my phone screen flicker on and off before collapsing into a scrabble of pixels and shutting down entirely. I stared agape at my reflection in the black screen as a terrible feeling of dread began to wash over me. When I looked back up, the girl was gone. In her place rested her hat. The hat appeared soaked, every bit as saturated with rain as my own clothes were. But unlike the jacket and jeans that clung to my skin and chilled me to the bone, the hat didn't feel wet when I picked it up with a trembling hand. It was dry to the touch even as I watched beads of rain drip from its brim and onto the car's upholstery. I realized with something between fascination and horror that the raindrops left behind no traces where they landed, and when I cupped my hand beneath the hat to catch the drops in my palm, I felt nothing but air. Furthermore, the back seat was completely dry. There were no damp footprints, no water spots, nothing at all to indicate that a girl wearing a coat glistening with rain had been sitting there mere seconds ago. I turned to fling the foul thing into the parking lot and gasped out loud when I saw the boy standing only a few feet away. She forgot her hat, I said dimly, my heart thundering madly in my chest. My mind screamed at me to jump into the car to drive off as fast as I could and never come back to Woodharrow Park again. But it was that same fear that left me rooted to the spot, paralyzed and helpless. 
even as the boy stepped ever closer to me. Stop it! I wanted to scream, but my tongue felt too thick to form the words. The boy lifted his hat, and a burst of darkness erupted in my eyes, blinding me as a hellish symphony assailed my other senses. I could neither see nor move as I felt insects scuttling behind my eyes and scales slithering inside of my skull. The vile taste of putrid water filled my mouth as the deathly scent of rot flooded my nostrils. Final breaths rattling in dying throats, drowning bodies thrashing in water as they sank, screams of agony so shrill that they sounded inhuman. I heard them all and many hideous more. I stood frozen in the terrifying darkness as the rain furiously slashed at my flesh like cold blades, unable to weep or let out a watery cry for help. And suddenly, I felt someone grab the hold of my hand and pull me free from the loathsome trance just as abruptly as I had been consumed by it. My vision returned and I saw I was now alone. Even the girl's hat had disappeared. I dove into my car and sped away from Woodhara Park. The sky grew clear with every mile. When I got home, I peeled off my wet clothes and climbed into the shower. And I sat there beneath the hot spray, immersing myself in the steam and the warmth, and jumped out the instant it turned cold. I dried off and crawled into my bed. Burying myself beneath the blankets as my mind raced with the nightmare I had endured. I wondered if the children, whoever they are, had somehow been drawn to the despair I'd felt as I walked through the park. Perhaps my hopelessness and sorrow had served as a miserable beacon, guiding them towards me and leaving me vulnerable to their presence. There was one thing I knew for certain. It was the girl who had rescued me. I'd known it the second I felt her small hand touch mine. I realized that she hadn't climbed into the car to frighten me. She had only wanted me to stay with her in the park. Tears slid down my cheeks as I thought of her being forced to forever wander Woodhara with no one but a boy who carried hell beneath his hat to keep her company. Maybe she too had once visited the park while bearing a sadness as heavy as my own only to wind up imprisoned by it. I slept fitfully. When I awoke the following morning, I discovered that the stain on my coat sleeve had somehow bled onto my arm, and I spent hours trying to wash it off, scouring my flesh until it grew angry and raw, but the mark refused to be cleaned away. I sat on the floor of my bathroom, gazed down into the imprint of the girl's fingers on my reddened skin, and felt the horrid chill of Woodharrow's rain creep down my spine. That was last week. The mark still remains on my arm. And at night, I toss and turn and vividly dream of the park. I've told myself repeatedly that I can't go back there that I was lucky to have made it out alive and might not be so fortunate again. But I can't stop thinking about the girl. I pity and fear her in equal measure. When it rains, I look out the window and wonder if I'll see her outside waiting for me, 
clutching her hat and bowing her tangled head. The thought both saddens and terrifies me. So I've made a decision, and perhaps I'll live long enough to regret this one too. As soon as I've finished posting this, I'm grabbing my car keys and driving to Woodharrow Park. I know that I might be driving towards my own doom. I know that the marks on my arm are likely a bad omen. I know that the girl may be every bit as malevolent as the boy, and that she may be trying to lure me into a trap of her own. I know that there's a strong chance I'll never be able to come back and tell you what happened. But I can't keep reliving the same nightmare over and over again. In a way, I never truly left Woodharrow. My mind wanders its path, even as I hide away in my home. I've got to go now. Wish me luck. I have a feeling it's about to rain. The Woodharrow Journal Last month, my boyfriend Fisher began to exhibit some strange and alarming behavior. He'd become fascinated with a place called Woodharrow Park after reading an online post documenting bizarre events that had purportedly occurred there. What I originally believed to be nothing more than a macabre curiosity quickly spiraled into an obsession that threatened to consume every aspect of his life. Fisher grew withdrawn and retreated into a state of self-induced isolation, leaving our apartment only to go to work. His job performance deteriorated, and he spent most of his time submerged in his ever-mounting research into the park. He scarcely ate and slept very little. Several nights, I awoke to find him hunched over his laptop, his tired, unshaven face and reddened eyes illuminated by the computer screen. He wore a constant foray expression that never faltered as if his thoughts were full of endless rain. The abrupt change in Fisher's personality disturbed me immensely. At first, I tried to be patient and hoped that it was merely an odd phase, but instead his infatuation with Woodharrow Park only became more destructive. My frustration eventually boiled over into frequent arguments. When he told me that he was leaving to search for the park and would return at the end of the week. I begged him not to go. I was hurt, embittered, and regrettably hostile, but no amount of desperate or emotional words could convince him to stay. A week wrought with apprehension followed Fisher's departure, after my texts and calls continued to go unanswered, and I could no longer ignore the sinking feeling that something terrible had happened. I reported him missing. The official investigation into his disappearance remains fruitless, and my own attempts at finding Fisher initially appeared equally barren. Every scrap of his research was missing from the apartment, and he left behind nothing that could pinpoint the routes he planned to travel. And most worryingly of all, Authorities have yet to determine for themselves where Woodharrow Park is located. I suspect that they don't believe it even exists. It was as if Fisher had vanished into thin air and taken half of my heart with him. But yesterday, 
An unexpected clue arrived in the form of an unmarked package resting on my doorstep. Inside it was Fisher's cell phone. I decided to publish its contents online in hopes that someone else might be able to help me piece together the mystery that has shattered my life. I have left each entry intact and made no alterations to the journal beyond providing dates and timestamps for the sake of structural clarity. The words you are about to read are entirely Fisher's own. Day 1 11.17 a.m. The local forecast showed no sign of rain, but I opted to carry an umbrella with me just in case. I pulled into the parking lot and was somewhat surprised to discover that a few other vehicles were already stationed there. The nameless author of the post, this entire venture has been built upon, was the park's sole visitor during their ordeal, and I'd expect to find it similarly vacant upon my arrival. I sat in my car for several tense moments, my hands trembling on the steering wheel as I attempted to summon enough courage to open the door, before finally taking a deep breath and surrendering myself to the mercy of Woodharrow Park. Sunlight beamed down on me warmly as I headed towards the park entrance, but Dredd's cold hand ran an icy digit down my spine the instant I stepped foot onto the paved trails. An eerie, disquieting chill sank over me as I imagined a doomed writer journeying along the same path that I myself was now traversing. A jogger spared me an impartial nod of acknowledgement when she passed by, while a man sitting on a bench never bothered to look up from his phone screen as I strolled past him. Though we were in arm's reach with one another, I felt as if they occupied a world millions of miles apart from my own. I briefly considered asking them if they were aware of the supernatural events that unfurled inside the park, or if they themselves had witnessed anything curious. But ultimately, I chose to continue exploring Woodharrow instead. I'd rather not converse with the townspeople if it could be avoided. I'm not out of snobbery, but because I worry that I'll come across as a pushy, overly inquisitive outsider or an outright crackpot. Neither label is desirable, and somehow, I don't think they'll be understanding of my reasons for visiting their humble little town. I've never been much for conversation anyway. Still, I realize that being deemed strange may be an inescapable risk I'll have to take if I want to gain answers to the questions. After all, that's the entire purpose of me being here. I walked the paths for over two hours before eventually leaving in a dissatisfied mood. I found the park entirely unremarkable, and frankly, I feel more than a little foolish when I recall my earlier nervousness. The only child I saw was a small boy wearing a shirt blotched with melted ice cream, laughing as his mother gently pushed him on one of the park's swings. It was hardly the stuff of nightmares. If Woodharrow contains anything worth fearing, I certainly didn't witness it today. 3.31pm I ate lunch at a diner near the motel before checking in and unpacking my suitcase. 
I turned on the room's outdated television set and stared into the screen's intermittent static riddled picture as the park crept back into my mind. I thought of the extraordinary claims that brought me this far and compared the frightening experience detailed with them to my own underwhelming excursion. Before I left for Woodharo, my girlfriend Nora told me that the only thing I was going to achieve was an embarrassing waste of time and money. She's made no attempt to hide her frustration over what she calls my obsession, and I can't say I blame her. Maybe Nora's right. Maybe the Woodharrow Post is nothing more than a modern-day campfire tale. I myself had initially regarded its peculiar content with skepticism when I first happened upon it online, and so had Nora, though her disbelief has yet to waver. But as the days passed, I couldn't seem to get it out of my head. The difficulty I had hunting down more information about the park only fueled my curiosity, and when I finally unearthed the internet trail that led me here, I felt as if I'd won an incredible prize. The rush of pure excitement surging through me wiped out any lingering doubts. Shortly afterwards, I began making plans. I won't allow myself to entertain negative thoughts or lose focus, and I refuse to give up just after one uneventful visit. Otherwise, everything I've sacrificed thus far, the countless hours dedicated to analyzing the post's every word, the sleepless nights spent researching paranormal matters, the funds I drained from my savings account, and the damaging strain on my relationship with Nora, will all have been for nothing. That's an exceedingly bitter pill I'm not prepared to swallow. 8.49pm The TV's snow ended up lulling me to sleep. By the time a sliver of news broadcast loudly pierced through the static, just long enough to rouse me from my slumber, the sun had already set. My body feels as heavy as lead and I'm still tired. I suppose my travels exhausted me more than I'd anticipated. Turning in for the night now, I could barely keep my eyes open long enough to type this. Day 2 1.24pm I returned to the park this morning and sat in my car for what felt like a contemplative eternity, watching the park's handful of visitors step out of their vehicles and into the sunlight. I was badly discouraged. I slept restlessly last night in that cheap motel room, and I awoke to a series of tersely worded texts from Nora, each one expressing her mounting resentment. It occurred to me that I could easily turn around and leave for good, instead of walking into the park and subjecting myself to a repeat of yesterday's disappointment. I could accept that my childish fascination had been a regrettable lapse of better judgment, I could swallow my humiliation, go home, spend the rest of the week I've taken off from work in the comfort of my apartment, rather than wandering around a small town's park. I buried my face in my hands, sickened by the revelation rising up in my throat like acidic bile. I'd made yet another spectacular mistake. I'd once again done something short-sighted in order to distract myself from the unhappiness that has tormented me for as long as I can remember. 
I felt like something much worse than a fool. I felt hideously pathetic. A living monument to humanity's never-ending romance with self-sabotage. Something's profoundly wrong with me. This is an indisputable fact. Shame burned through every fiber of my being. I was bemoaning the cost of my misguided adventure when I heard the first raindrop land on the car's windshield. I froze. Another drop followed. Then another. And by the time I shakily lifted my head, the sky had erupted into a full-on downpour. Yesterday's dread paled in comparison to the wave of terror that overcame me when I realized that the other parked cars had suddenly vanished, leaving me alone in an empty lot. I frantically reached for the car keys and sped away so rapidly that my tires shrieked across the asphalt. My heart was still pounding when I ducked into the motel room and bolted the door shut behind me and I wrapped myself in the threadbare blankets I'd tossed and turned beneath the night before and, and tried to warm the chill prickling across my flesh. The rain clouds have long since disbanded, but I've continued to cautiously peer out of the window nonetheless. I won't go back to the park. I can't. Tonight I'll get some sleep. The first thing in the morning I'm packing my bags and leaving. If there's anything I've learned from the post I now wish I'd never read, it's that the rain at Woodharrow isn't merely a bout of bad weather. It's a warning. Day 3. 5.57 a.m. I'm at the park now. I've gone back. God help me, I've gone back. Why? I can't truly explain it. I haven't even exited the car yet and already I regret my decision. It wasn't mere curiosity that drove me here, but something perilous inside my mind that just won't allow me to stay away. I was wide awake all night, pacing until I was certain my footsteps had left behind a permanent indentation along the motel room carpet. No one else is here. The sky is still dark and it started raining seconds after I arrived. I don't think I should bring the umbrella with me. 8.02 a.m. I found her. She's sitting on a swing, her head bowed and her tawny pallid hands frigidly clenched its rusted chains. The wide brim of her hat obscures most of her face, but I could still see the blonde knots of her tangled hair. She doesn't seem to mind the rain pelting her. She just remains unnaturally still, her small feet dangling stiffly above the wet ground, like she's been frozen in place or stricken with rigor mortis. Even from this distance, I could feel her despair. The sun should have risen by now. She's yet to move. Should I call out to her? 9.43 a.m. Back in the motel room now. I'm going to type this up while it's still fresh in my exhilarated mind. Before I could stop myself, I opened my mouth. Hello? I shouted. Are you alright? If the girl heard me, she gave no indication of it. She sat as motionless as a statue even as I slowly approached her. 
My pulse accelerated with each step, and just when I was close enough to see the cracks running along the paper-thin surface of her fingernails, a sudden burst of thunder caused me to jolt with surprise and glance upwards towards the ominous sky. And when I looked back down, she was gone. I ran throughout the park, so drenched with cold rain that my teeth chattered as I sprinted. I ran until my breathing grew ragged, and the pain in my chest became too sharp to ignore. Only then did I slink wetly back to my car and return to the motel, where the sun shone brightly above me. My flesh feels like it's been constructed from ice, and I still need to change out of my soaked clothes. But it isn't my body temperature that's making me lightheaded. It's the overwhelming sense of victory coursing through my veins like adrenaline. I wasn't wrong. The Wood Harrow children are real. I haven't seen the boy yet, but if the girl is there, then that means he's likely not far behind. I'm going to take a hot shower, then nap, but only a very brief one. There's still much work to be done. 7.05 p.m. My joints feel as though they've been replaced with broken shards of glass that grind together agonizingly whenever I move. I can only make it as far as the bathroom before the ache becomes too much to bear and I retreat back into bed. At some point, the scent of roses began to permeate the motel room. I covered my nose with my shirt and even attempted to smother the fragrance with a half-empty can of pine spice air freshener I found stowed away in a dresser drawer but it continues to linger inside my nostrils and make my head swim with memories I want to forget. I can still see the bouquets clutched in my father's calloused hands, the delicate white blossoms of baby's breath brushing against lush emerald leaves and petals as rich as red velvet, the pink tissue paper cradling the flowers and tied elegantly with a satin ribbon the jarring contrast between his roughened palms and the fragile arrangements he held in his grasp. Each time my mother was presented with roses, he would wipe the tears from her blackened eyes and bruised cheeks, smile shakily, and forgive Dad once more. Today, just walking past the florist shop is enough to turn my stomach. Both my parents had been dead for years. I spent my adult life trying to lock the bleak specter of my childhood inside the deepest recesses of my memory, hoping that it will eventually wither away and rot into dust. Why should it re-emerge to haunt me now? The smell's giving me a headache. I'm going to try sleeping in the car. 11.37 p.m. I woke up in the Wood Harrow parking lot. I don't remember driving here. It's raining again. Perhaps it never stopped. Day 4 12.04 AM Nora has made multiple attempts to contact me. I haven't answered her calls or read her texts. By now, her anger has likely abated into concern. I love my girlfriend, but I don't know what to say to her anymore. I certainly can't tell her about what's happening here. If I'm alive long enough to complete this journal, I won't publish so much as a single sentence of it online, 
Though I've continued to document my experiences, I don't intend those words to be read by anyone but myself. I will not be responsible for the demise of anyone who might use them to seek out the wood harrow and find themselves trapped in the cycle I currently find myself imprisoned within. Powerless to battle whatever keeps bringing me back to the park, frightened of what might lie ahead, yet still ravenous for the knowledge that lurks behind the park's veil. You know, I think what scares me the most is the realization that if I could somehow travel backwards in time and prevent myself from ever journeying into Woodhiro, I'd doubtlessly come right back here anyway. You see, I need to know. I need to know what lies beneath the boy's hat. I need to know who the children are and why Woodhiro is their home. I need to know how this park can simultaneously be an ordinary estate and a godforsaken place. But most of all, I need to know what happened to the writer of the post that began my irreversible descent. I wish I could believe that they never returned to Woodharrow and instead went on to live a peaceful life far past the park's reach. But I think I know better. Whatever their terrible fate was... I'm certain that my own impending destiny will soon mirror it. I'm aware that each answer I seek will carry a heavy, dangerous price, but I'm willing to pay for all of them. 1.15am. I could see the girl's swollen form standing near the park sign. I don't know if she senses that I'm observing her. It's essential that I remain as calm and careful as possible. If she notices me... She might flee again. Ah, she's just turned towards the entrance path and begun to walk away. I'm going to follow her from afar. 3.07 a.m. I don't remember the path being this long before. I'm starting to hear things. My father's enraged roar distorted by water, and my mother's weeping an ocean of tears, drowning cries for help silenced by crashing waves, serpentine hissing and the nauseating writhing of maggots, fingernails splintered into fractured shards as they claw frenziedly at unmovable stones. I have to keep going. 4.41 a.m. A thought just occurred to me. The Woodharrow Post authors stated that their phones ceased to function when they encountered the girl, yet mine continues to operate smoothly. I think it's because the park somehow knows that I have no intention of calling for help. I think it wants me to share my story. Well, that's not going to happen. Whatever awaits me at the end of the path, I won't allow the park to fashion me into a pawn and use my journal to lure others here. I don't think I'll ever see Nora again. While this saddens me more than I can express, I acknowledge that it's for the best. She deserves better than a boy with an ugly past who grew up to become a man dragging the unbreakable hidden chains of self-loathing alongside him wherever he went. What kind of person finds the beauty of roses appalling? Something is profoundly wrong with me. This is an indisputable fact. In time, she would have eventually grown to hate me. Maybe it's the best that our relationship concludes with my disappearance. 
At least this way, she'll mourn me rather than look back and regard our life together only with revulsion. Tragedy has a tendency to make even flawed people appear magnificent. Part of me always knew this would become a one-way journey. I can admit that now. 4.49 a.m. There's footsteps behind me. I already know who they belong to. 4.52 a.m. He's reaching for his hat now. I love you, Nora. I'm grateful that you will never read this. To say that these entries devastated me would be a grievous understatement. But I can't afford to be absorbed in despondency and fall to weeping pieces. Right now, the only thing I care about is finding Fisher. Someone out there knows exactly what happened. And they want me to know too. I mean, why else have they sent me his phone? It contains more than just his journal. It holds enough information to retrace Fisher's steps and guide me to the park. I'm acutely aware that the park is dangerous, and I realize that Fisher wouldn't want me to go, but I feel I have little choice in the matter. You see, after I finished examining Fisher's cell, I noticed something that chilled me to the bone. Though the phone was free of residue and as clean as if it had just been freshly plucked from his pocket, it left behind a dark stain on my hand. I've since tried to scrub the ink-like mark away, but it won't seem to budge. I suppose it doesn't really matter. I would have gone anyway. Whatever sorrow Woodharo holds cannot compare to the pain I felt in the wake of Fisher's absence. I too am prepared to pay a heavy price for answers. Anyway, it's time for me to leave. I want to get there as quickly as possible. There's someone waiting for me in the rain. <laughs>